Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. host, Chip Wagar. If you were to ask most people who have any interest in history, let alone military history, what was the battle that ended Napoleon's domination of Europe? I'd venture to say that most people would say Waterloo. Some people might say the invasion of Russia, although that was a whole campaign and not a battle. And in fact, the only major battle fought during that campaign Borodino, was a victory for Napoleon. But neither of these answers would be correct. The battle that doomed Napoleon to utter and complete ruin was fought around the city of Leipzig in the German kingdom of Saxony over four days, October 16th through the 19th, 1813. And it's an interesting question why this battle, involving the armies of 12 independent nations and over 600,000 soldiers, the largest battle for a 100 years until World War I, is not better known and given the credit it deserves, except among military history buffs like me, who really know the story of this epic contest. I have some theories about that. But let me tell you something about my own viewpoint in this episode of this series of podcasts that you should know and may put this question in context. I've always had, as long as I can remember, an abiding interest in the history of the European continent, but more particularly continental Europe, and there's a difference. This continent, the second smallest, ahead of only Australia, for something like five centuries, the most recent five centuries, dominated the political, economic, and of course military evolution and history of the entire planet. From about the year 1500 and the rise of Spain, the expansion of Europeans into North and South America, led at first by Spain and to some extent Portugal, and then joined by France, the Netherlands, and Britain, Europe and the political states that made it up rose to dominate not merely the largely primitive continents of the Americas and Australia, but as the centuries rolled on, of Asia and Africa as well. The civilizations of the world were slowly and then increasingly rapidly and deeply influenced, dominated, and in many cases for a while, subjugated to the power of the Europeans. Only in the 20th century, and the second half of it at that, was their power broken in the titanic world wars that convulsed that continent between 1914 and 1945. 
the emergence of the United States and China outside Europe, who are today the two single greatest economic, political, and military power centers on the globe, is a relatively recent phenomenon. And one of these powers, the United States, was and is the spawn of European colonists and immigrants, above all else. Even today, Russia, a European country, remains a major great power. And the latent economic and political power of the countries of Europe collectively rivals that of the, of the United States and China. So that's why, to me, this continent fascinates me and always has driven me to want to understand it deeply and explore the reasons for its dominance for so long. The continent of Europe, stretching from Iceland and Britain on its western rim to the steppes and the Ural Mountains of Russia in the east, is a geographic term that everyone understands. But it's a complex checkerboard of nation-states whose rivalries, whose competition, and yes, wars, ironically, were the basis of its rise and fall when they became so self-destructive that these nations quite literally ruined themselves in the 20th century. But there's a little more to it than that. Some of the nation-states of Europe, particularly on the fringes, while sharing the fate of the continent, have always been, in some ways, apart from it. Is Russia a European country? Or an Asian country, where most of its landmass is located? Or not entirely one or the other? Likewise, Britain, an island power located off the coast of Europe, whose gaze was so often directed far out to sea to imperial conquests far away from the continent. Was it, is it, a truly continental European country? Many people would say not really. Turkey, with its great city of Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, in Europe, but the bulk of its territory and former empire in Asia or Africa, most people would not say was a truly European country, although its fate most certainly was and is bound up with the continent. My interest has invariably tended toward what I will call continental European states and their history, a much tighter, compact landmass that begins on the shorelines of France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Spain in the west, Italy and the Balkans in the south, Scandinavia in the north, and including the Baltic states and Poland in the east. In the middle of all this, what were the German and Austrian states and provinces form a central mass, and here lies to a great extent, the answer to the question I posed a few minutes ago. To those of us who speak the English language, either exclusively or mainly, like me, who read history in English, there's been a tendency over the centuries to look at the history of Europe from the point of view of those who wrote it in English. That is to say, 
from historians from Britain and in later times the United States. And if you look at the Napoleonic period, for example, from a predominantly Anglo-American point of view, certainly up to about the middle or later 20th century, it should come as no surprise that, for example, Waterloo might be thought of as the decisive battle and defeat for Napoleon, and not Leipzig. Certainly, it's the far better known of the two battles. Waterloo, as I remarked in my earlier podcast on that battle, is the most famous battle in the world. Wellington, Blucher, and of course Napoleon himself. Napoleon exiled to St. Helena, never to return. The Hundred Days, the Prussians arriving in the nick of time. Most people know it. They've heard of it. It's a British victory, even though... Wellington's army was not mainly British, but a coalition of British, Dutch, and Germans. The battle has been dissected and written about by British, English-speaking historians for centuries, for for more than uh, two centuries. It was made into movies, has had cities named after it. There's the Waterloo Rail Station in London and all of that. But if you were a German speaker, or a Russian, or perhaps a Frenchman, you might have a different answer to the question of what battle sent Napoleon down, and it would be this one, Leipzig, that I'm going to tell you about today. There's sort of a similarity in this to the defeat of Hitler and Germany in World War II. English speakers tend to credit D-Day and the Anglo-American-Canadian offensive in France in 1944 and 45 as the decisive blow that doomed the Third Reich, because, I'm going to suggest to you, we have a lot of pride in what our boys did. And it was no small thing, that's for sure. But if you really want to know what brought the Third Reich to its knees, you'd look far from the shores of Normandy, to the bleak, snowy plains around Moscow or the shores of the Volga River at Stalingrad between 1941 and 1945. Virtually alone, the Soviet Union took on the vast bulk of the Nazi war machine, stopped it, dismantled it, and utterly annihilated it on the way to besieging and capturing Berlin. You see what I mean? There's a natural and inherent bias in the historiography of the English-speaking world toward the achievements and accomplishments of English-speaking armies, fleets, campaigns, and battles as compared to those of other nations. Their struggles, defeats, and triumphs are often obscure to us. When and where they happened, who their leaders were, and how they did it is often unknown to us, and yet there have been times, without diminishing in any way the contribution of our arms, that in truth the decisive battles, the turning points of epic wars, were the result of other nations' armies. For instance, most English speakers with any interest in history have likely heard of Wellington, Blucher, Napoleon, Admiral Nelson, but may never have heard of Schwarzenberg, Benningsen, Poniatowski, or Bernadette. Just as in more modern times, English speakers will know Eisenhower, 
Patton, Montgomery, and Omar Bradley. But probably not Zhukov, Vasilevsky, Rokosovsky, or Nikolai Vatutin. Yet these commanders, obscure to English speakers, are as important, or in many ways had greater impact, than those we know. There were no English-speaking armies at Leipzig. In 1813, the British war effort against Napoleon was either at sea or in Spain. As a matter of fact, the other main British war effort in 1813 was in Canada against the United States, who was allied with France. Until Waterloo, no British army had ever faced Napoleon himself, but other nation-states in Europe had. So let's place this war, the War of the Sixth Coalition, in context, as we always do, and revisit the political-military situation on the continent of Europe in 1813. In 1813, the European continent found itself divided into three camps. France and its allies, those at war with France and their allies, and those who were neutral. At the outset of 1813, six months after invasion, Russia and Britain were at war with with uh, France, while the two other so-called great powers were nominal allies of France, and that would be Prussia and Austria. Both of them had reluctantly provided small military forces in June 1812 to the invading army of Napoleon, but the king of Prussia and the emperor of Austria had done so out of fear of another war with Napoleon. With the collapse of Napoleon's invading army in November and December 1812, the Prussian and uh, Austrian auxiliary armies withdrew, and on December 14th, the last remaining bits of Napoleon's army left Russian territory. Now, estimates vary on the extent of the losses on both sides, but many people think that that's where Napoleon's empire was lost, and that, um, you know, when he uh, left Russia, he had so little left that he was easily overpowered by Russia and a few other countries, and that was the end of that. And that's far from the truth. Of Napoleon's invading army of some 600,000 men, it's thought that nearly 400,000 died with another 100,000 taken prisoner. Losses on the Russian side were also heavy, but due to poor documentation, the best estimates are that Russian military deaths numbered something in the range of 210,000 soldiers and militia. Importantly, the French army also lost some 200,000 horses and 1,000 artillery pieces, which would haunt them as much as the loss of manpower in the months to come. But it's important to recognize that the loss of available manpower to Napoleon was also due mainly to de- desertion by his allies, like Prussia and Austria. 
as well as losses to other Allied or auxiliary forces, particularly the Poles, but also Italians and Germans. The Polish forces of somewhere around 100,000 men, about a sixth of the invading army, suffered nearly 75% casualties. Nonetheless, the French army that remained in Poland and eastern Germany after the retreat was estimated to number somewhere in the range of 30,000. On the other hand, the Russian main army at the beginning of 1813 that was approaching the Russian frontier is thought to have numbered around 70,000. Thirty thousand, seventy thousand. While these numbers are not exact by any means, you'll see right away that the main combatants, Russia and France, had suffered enormous losses, and both had armies deconditioned and debilitated by the war. While Russia had successfully expelled the French, the idea that Russia could sustain an offensive alone that would push the French back to Paris and compel surrender was regarded even then as preposterous. Russia needed allies. France needed to keep the allies it had after leading them to disaster and to muster reinforcements. Each side set about doing exactly that. Sweden had secretly defected to the Anglo-Russian side during 1812 after France had occupied Swedish Pomerania, a territory it ruled in. Uh, northern Germany on the Baltic. Although Sweden didn't declare war on France until after the Russian campaign. Prussia declared war on France in March 1813, leaving only Austria as the remaining uncommitted great power. Meanwhile, Napoleon imposed upon his remaining German allies to contribute troops and conscripted more from France. By May 1813, the French army had approximately 170,000 men in the theater. And when I talk about the theater, I mean the wide-angle view of where we're going to be talking about. And that's going to be eastern Germany, what is today eastern Germany. And in particular, we're going to get to this, uh, a part of eastern Germany known as Saxony. In any event, the French forces in that area would increasingly swell to a strength of about 225,000 by the time of Leipzig. Russia and Prussia also conscripted and equipped for more fighting, and by the time of Leipzig would contribute 145,000 and 90,000 troops, respectively, to the battle. Nonetheless, as you can see, the respective size of the military forces available to Napoleon on the one side and the Russians and Prussians on the other were roughly equal. Furthermore, while the Russians had survived the French invasion, they had not actually confronted and decisively beaten the French in any major stand-up battle, nor achieved anything more than relatively small tactical successes during the retreat nor had the Prussians. In fact, the last time that Prussia had dared to oppose Napoleon, in 1806, it had been utterly crushed in a matter of weeks by the master at the Battle of Jena 
Auerstedt. Sweden would con- eventually contribute another 25,000 troops to the cause, but again, the Swedish army had never defeated any French army of substance, let alone one led by Napoleon himself. Britain's contribution was indirect, money and a field army in Spain. While that was no small thing, and did succeed in pinning down French forces on the opposite side of the continent that might have been used in Central Europe, when it came to actual decisive military force at the point of attack, Britain added nothing but money subsidies. The Russians and Prussians nonetheless pushed into Germany and eventually met Napoleon's Army of the Elba at Lutzen on May 2nd. Lutzen is a small town to the southwest of Leipzig, which was the second largest city in the kingdom of Saxony. An ally of Napoleon's, by the way. For those of you unfamiliar with the geography, Saxony was then, and still is, located in eastern Germany, and bordered what was then uh, Austrian Bohemia, and is today Czechia. I mention this now because Saxony was the theater of war, and the location of this battle. Its location, so close to the border with the then Austrian Empire, will become very important as our story moves on. The capital of Saxony was Dresden, which is located about 70 miles to the east-southeast of Leipzig, and is a magnificent, beautiful city if you've never been there. The Russian army, some 56,000 strong, was led by General Peter Wittgenstein, a German count who had been in Russian service since 1793. He'd fought at Austerlitz and Friedland, both heavy defeats for Russia, and would fight again at Leipzig. He was joined by a 37,000-strong Prussian army under the command of the legendary Gebhardt von Blücher. Both King Frederick William III of Prussia and Tsar Alexander I of Russia were present at the Battle of Lutzen. What they saw was a French army led by Napoleon lure the coalition army into a trap and then rout it by about 78,000 French. Contact had first been made by the Russians with a corps of the French army under Marshal Ney. Napoleon instructed Ney to retreat toward his main army, including the French Imperial Guard, which he maneuvered in secret to position it on the flanks of the advancing coalition army. With perfect timing, Ney turned and pinned the coalition army in place while Napoleon unleashed a devastating artillery barrage and then a flank attack that collapsed the Allied army.
Blucher saved the army from annihilation by a desperate counterattack that prevented the army from being surrounded long enough to escape, but it was a stinging defeat. Due to the lack of cavalry, thanks to the losses in Russia, Napoleon was unable to ride down the retreating infantry and artillery, and the coalition army broke contact in retreat. Losses were about even on each side, but once again, with inferior numbers, Napoleon was more than a match for two of the coalition's best generals, who barely saved themselves and their armies from disaster. Nonetheless, Napoleon and his army gave chase on foot, driving ever eastward past Dresden and caught up with the coalition army two weeks later at Bautzen, about 120 miles to the east of Lutzen, and some 40 miles east-northeast of Dresden. At Bautzen, the generals were ordered to halt, turn and fight by the king of Prussia and the Tsar, but once again they personally witnessed another near catastrophe. This time, Napoleon's available force of nearly 120,000 and a huge grand battery of artillery engaged the coalition army, while another force of some 85,000 under Marshal Ney, was directed to join the battle in the Allied rear, preventing their escape. Without going into too much detail, Ney never managed to accomplish this maneuver, which would have annihilated the coalition army root and branch. Once again, they escaped destruction, but there could be little doubt that any further rematches with Napoleon might well prove mortal. In fact, many of the Russian generals urged the Tsar to quit the fight altogether, reasoning that they had succeeded in expelling the invader from Russian soil and that it was too dangerous to continue the fighting in Germany. So, as you can see, although France and her allies had indeed suffered a devastating loss in the Russian campaign of 1812, Napoleon was far from finished. And here's another point that many people have to consider that what happened in history was inevitable, that it was bound to happen. The truth is, few things in history were bound to happen. There are always many potential alternative outcomes that might well have happened. The counterfactual evaluation of history is, what if another decision had been made, another course had been taken? Would things have turned out differently? And if so, how would our world be different today? This is one of those points where things might very well have turned out differently. And the crucial issue at this point was whether the Austrian Empire would stay neutral as a nominal ally of Napoleon or join the coalition. And it was at this point in the struggle that all eyes turned toward Vienna. The Austrian Empire disposed of a potentially massive army gathering in Bohemia, just across the border from Saxony, of over a 100,000 men, and another one in Italy of about equal size. The Austrians had actually managed to briefly defeat Napoleon four years earlier at Aspern, but then suffered a heavy defeat at Wagram, forcing it to sue for peace and, for four years, assume a policy of collaboration with Napoleon, 
In fact, the daughter of the Austrian emperor had become Napoleon's second wife and bore him his only legitimate male heir. Therefore, the Austrian emperor, Francis, had become Napoleon's father-in-law and his grandson, Napoleon's apparent successor. Furthermore, the Austrian empire had come to view the expanding, rising Russian empire dominating Europe in collaboration with its longtime rival, Prussia, as at least as much a threat as Napoleonic France. Emperor Francis and his foreign minister, Clemens von Metternich, therefore had hesitated to switch sides. But now the time had come to decide. The Austrian government considered the best outcome to be one in which it regained the territories it had lost in 1809 to Napoleon after Wagram, and set up a system in which Russia and France balanced one another with Austria in the middle as the fulcrum, and with Prussia getting nothing at all. And so Metternich was dispatched to meet first with the coalition, and then with Napoleon, while all the time Austria continued to arm itself for potential war. A middle path, so to speak. On the military side, while Austria could summon a relatively huge army, it made up in size for lack of quality. Austria had been bankrupted by repeated wars with France between 1792 and 1809, and the result was a poorly equipped and supplied army that was scraping the bottom of the barrel. What it did have, however, perhaps unsuspected at that time, was two commanders of the highest quality who would eventually come to manage the coalition armies on the strategic and operational level. Prince Karl Philipp von Schwarzenberg and Joseph Radetzky von Raditz. More about them later. And so it went. Austria intervened, requesting both sides agree to an armistice in the fighting, to which both sides, exhausted now, agreed. Metternich was dispatched first to meet with the coalition at Reichenbach to hammer out terms that the coalition would accept and offer to Napoleon. The Allies were quick to realize the magnitude of Austrian intervention on their side, particularly in light of the two successive defeats they'd just suffered without Austria, and soon agreed to moderate terms, essentially dictated by Metternich and signed on June 27th. Napoleon, now encamped in Dresden, agreed to meet with Metternich there on June 26th, where Metternich presented the Allied terms. Flush with the victories at Lutzen and Bautzen, and contemptuous of what Austrian intervention could bring to the war, Napoleon angrily rejected the terms offered. Metternich was incredulous, but in many hours of discussion and negotiation, he couldn't bring Napoleon around to realizing the mistake he would make by rejecting Austrian mediation and essentially forcing the Austrian emperor to choose the other side. In the weeks that followed, the armistice was extended as both sides continued to parley at a lower level while girding for a renewal of the war. Meanwhile, having resigned themselves to joining the war, the Austrians continued to extract concessions from Russia and Prussia 
the most important of which for our story, was an agreement that the Austrian commander, Schwarzenberg, would be the supreme military commander of the combined Allied forces. This also meant that Radetzky would assume the role of chief of staff and planning of the operational campaign. This decision was a fateful one, both in terms of the ultimate success of the Allies, but also in a political sense, because Austria would, indeed, become the fulcrum of continental European geopolitics from that moment until well after the death of the Austrian Emperor decades later in 1835. It was a galling decision for the Russian Tsar, who would make two attempts to overthrow it in the weeks and months that followed, and assume supreme command himself, but he would not succeed. The Prussians, the junior partner to the enterprise, accepted the decision with far more grace, having no pretensions like Alexander, of the glory of liberating Europe. Metternich also succeeded in neutralizing Bavaria, a former ally of Napoleon's, but whose king was now contemplating future life next door to Austria without Napoleon. On September 10th, Bavaria signed an armistice with Austria and left the Napoleonic camp. Other smaller German states, once allies of Napoleon, also thought better of it and one by one began to switch sides as well, depriving France of further auxiliaries and threatening Napoleon's supply lines from Saxony to Paris. The Allied command structure therefore began with Schwarzenberg at the top, supported by Radetzky. The field armies of the powers were, of course, commanded by their own generals and staff, a virtual murderer's row of commanders, veterans of innumerable campaigns and battles by now, that would fill pages, but included on the Prussian side Blucher and Johann York. On the Russian side, Barclay de Tolly, Benningsen, and Wittgenstein. On the Austrian side, Field Marshals Uli, Klenau, and Colorado. And for Sweden, Field Marshals Stednink and the Crown Prince Bernadette. On the French side, under Napoleon's command, he had as his Chief of Staff the incomparable Field Marshal Louis Berthier and Corps Commanders such as Ney, Murat, Marmont, Poniatowski, Bertrand, and MacDonald, among others. The Austrian and now coalition chief of staff, Radetzky, conceived of a new strategic method to deal with the seemingly invincible quality of Napoleon on the battlefield, known as the Trachenberg Plan, after the palace where he convinced the other coalition commanders to employ it. Simply put, pitched battles with Napoleon would be avoided to the extent possible. Instead, the Allied commanders would pick off Napoleon's marshals and smaller contingents of the French army one by one, whittling away at French combat strength. While this plan would be carried out right up to the occupation of Paris a year later, it didn't always work out perfectly. At times, Napoleon couldn't be avoided, and Leipzig would be one of those times. The Swedish crown prince Bernadette once one of Napoleon's marshals before he married the daughter of the King of Sweden, seconded the plan enthusiastically at the conference. His insights into the mind of Napoleon 
and his experience in Napoleon's service weighed heavily with Tsar Alexander and King Frederick William, who gave their assent to the Austrian strategy. The plan was put into effect immediately and began to pay dividends. With the addition of Austrian military units to the coalition's forces, numbers began to go increasingly against the French. Napoleon's theater strength was about 300,000, with 800 artillery, while the Allies had more than 450,000 and some 1,200 cannon. Nonetheless, these forces on both sides were not yet concentrated. On August 23rd, Marshal Udenay was defeated in his attempt to occupy Berlin at Grossbieren by Prussian General Wilhelm von Bülow and Bernadette. On August 26, Marshal Blücher defeated a French corps under the command of Marshal MacDonald at Katzbach. Nonetheless, on the same day as Katzbach, Napoleon took the initiative as coalition forces prepared to enter the Saxon capital of Dresden, countering the Trachenberg strategy. Schwarzenberg's army advanced to the outskirts of Dresden and were there engaged by the French, manning the defenses of the city under General Saint-Cyr. As fighting raged, Napoleon arrived with the main force and managed to cut off and isolate part of the Austrian army, which was then decimated by repeated assaults by Murat. The Battle of Dresden involved about 135,000 French as against 215,000 Allied. Taking losses of three to one, Schwarzenberg ordered a retreat, again in full view of the Tsar, the Prussian king, and now the Austrian emperor, Francis, as well. It was then that the Tsar chose to push for Schwarzenberg's ouster as supreme commander. Metternich threatened that Austria would withdraw from the coalition if that happened, and the Tsar backed down. Nonetheless, again, one can see how superiority in numbers, even a substantial one, was not necessarily decisive against Napoleon himself. As the Duke of Wellington once observed, quote, I used to say of him that his presence on the field made the difference of 40,000 men. Yet Radetzky and Schwarzenberg patiently stuck to the strategy, and more coalition victories would follow, beginning within days of the defeat at Dresden. Emboldened by success at Dresden, Napoleon sought to exploit it in hot pursuit of the retreating Allied army, but without much cavalry. He sent part of his army, about 34,000 men under Marshal Van Damme, after the retreating Allies. Van Damme caught up with a Russian rear guard of about 16,000 at Kulm a few days later on August 29th. The Russians, under General Tolstoy, turned and stood their ground, repulsing Van Damme's attacks while additional forces sped to his side. The following day, a Prussian corps under von Kleist appeared in Van Damme's rear, while a large Austrian force under Colorado joined Tolstoy, tipping the balance of forces in favor of the Allies. Van Damme attempted to retreat, but was captured, along with about half his forces killed or taken prisoner, reversing the verdict of Dresden. In all, the French lost some 10,000 dead or prisoners, while the Allies lost a similar amount. Given their increasing numerical superiority, they could bear it more. The shattered French units were sent reeling in retreat toward Dresden and then Leipzig. 
Still, Van Damme was not Napoleon, who loomed somewhere to the west with the main French army of the Elbe. Napoleon attempted to regain the initiative by another attack on coalition forces protecting Berlin. He replaced Udine with Ney, who began marching on September 5th with about 60,000 men, but was quickly confronted by a combined Swedish-Russian-Prussian force around Denevitz, under the command of Prussian General Friedrich von Bülow and Bernadette. By late afternoon, on September 6th, the French were again defeated and forced to withdraw. Ney's retreat through Saxony placed him between the pincers of a pursuing von Bülow and a closing Blucher with another Prussian army, the Army of Silesia. Bülow caught up with Ney at Wartenberg on October 3rd and mauled him again, but by now Bülow, Blucher, and Bernadette were closing in on Napoleon from the north and northeast, all three armies on the same side of the Elba River, as the 200,000-man Russian and Austrian main armies, the Army of Bohemia, steadily pressed him from the east under Schwarzenberg. Napoleon made one last attempt to personally intervene and crush the Prussian-Swedish forces to the north at Dubin on October 14th with his main force, but... Following the Trachtenberg's plan, Blucher, Bülow, and Bernadette avoided the thrust, retreating as far as Halle to the northwest of Leipzig, while the army of Bohemia continued its advance through Dresden and approached Leipzig. Eventually, Napoleon gave up the pursuit and withdrew to concentrate his forces in and around Leipzig. So between October 14th and 16th, this was the situation. Since most of you listening to this will not have a map in front of you, you can imagine the city of Leipzig in the middle of a page of paper, filling up with about 160,000 French, 40,000 Saxons under the command of their king, Frederick Augustus, and other German units from puppet Confederation of the Rhine States, 15,000 Poles under Poniatowski, and 10,000 Italians, with 700 guns, and including also Marshals Berthier, Ney, and Burat. Coalition forces numbered about 380,000 at the outset of fighting on October 16th, with 145,000 Russians, 115,000 Austrians, and 90,000 Prussians, but they were split apart. The massive Austro-Russian army of Bohemia, under the direct command of Schwarzenberg, approached to just south of the town of Wachau, about six miles due south of the city center of Leipzig, and spread out to the east and west in an arc from about the eight o'clock position in the west to the five o'clock position in the east. The mainly Prussian forces under Blucher approached Lindenthal, about five miles to the northeast, and comprised an arc from about the 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock position. This still allowed for a very wide gap on the eastern side of Leipzig between Schwarzenberg's right flank, under the command of the Russian generals Benigsen and Platov, and Blucher's left flank, under the command of Langeron. In the west, there was a smaller gap between the Austrian left under Mervelt and Uli and Blucher's right commanded by York. 
So Napoleon's army was not surrounded, but was in a vice that would close more and more tightly around him as the battle and days went on. The coalition was also bedeviled by the terrain. Let's talk about that in a moment, but um, we're talking here about forests, rivers, uh, with key bridges held by the French, and the fact that Napoleon would have the interior lines, meaning he could quickly shift his forces around to meet dangerous contingencies or exploit opportunities. The coalition would, by contrast, have to move ponderously and carefully because they could not shift forces quickly if anything would go wrong. And, of course, things always go wrong. Further, the French would, as always in major battles, have unity of command with Napoleon at the top. The coalition, by contrast, had a unified command in theory, but a fractious one. The Tsar, in particular, was a constant distraction uh, to Schwarzenberg and other generals in the coalition. And managing the opinions and egos of multiple military commanders, some of whom had high aristocratic and even royal rank, made coalition decision-making as cautious and ponderous as their maneuvers. Inside the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg is a portrait of the Russian generalissimo Alexander Suvorov, who had died 13 years earlier in 1800. He's often called Russia's invincible general because he never lost a battle in his long and illustrious career, even against the French. He once said, quote, When the enemy is driven back, we have failed. When he is cut off and circled and dispersed, we have succeeded. In all the battles leading up to Leipzig, after the retreat from Russia, neither Napoleon nor the coalition commanders had succeeded, if measured by Suvorov's standards. Each side had inflicted defeats on the other, it's true, but neither side had cut off retreat and circled their opponent and dispersed them. At Leipzig, Napoleon would increasingly have to contend with the possibility of encirclement. The coalition only the possibility of another tactical defeat. We've talked about Napoleon in our previous podcasts, Austerlitz and Waterloo. His personal courage, his opportunism, his uncanny ability to improvise and adjust his strategy and tactics. Unquestionably, he was, and still remains, the military genius of his age, and his military abilities had been showcased again before the three Eastern monarchs and their staffs. His abilities were so unquestioned and so feared that, after all, the coalition had devised a plan to avoid him, but now he could not be evaded or ignored. And yet, the coalition commanders who faced him were not his equal, and they all knew it. I'm going to introduce to you now a few of the commanders that played such an important role in this battle. The supreme coalition commander, Schwarzenberg, was an aristocrat 
a prince, who had risen to the trust and command he held in the service of the Austrian Emperor Francis. As a field general, he was talented and respected by no less a person than Napoleon himself. During the abortive invasion of Russia, when Austria had been forced to commit an army of some 30,000, it was under the command of Schwarzenberg. When on August 12, 1812, he inflicted a thorough defeat on the Russians at Gorodechna, Napoleon was impressed enough to recommend to Francis that he be made a field marshal. Corpulent but handsome, he was born into an aristocratic family and was 42 years old at the time of Leipzig. He had entered military service in 1788 and fought in the Turkish War under two famous Austrian field marshals, Lacey and Loudon. When the war broke out with France in 1792, he was involved from then on in almost every major military campaign. He had fought and commanded at Hohenlinden, Ulm, and Wagram, as well as many other less uh, famous battles, most of which had ended in defeat for the Austrians, but in which he personally distinguished himself. He reached general rank in 1796 at 25 years of age, only one year later than Napoleon himself. In the interim between Wagram in 1809 and the outbreak of war in 1813, Schwarzenberg had distinguished himself in the diplomatic service. He succeeded Metternich as ambassador to France and was instrumental in the marriage of the emperor's daughter to Napoleon. He was well acquainted with Napoleon and his generals, both from his experience fighting against them, fighting alongside them, and through his social contact with them in Paris during the period of peace as the Austrian ambassador. He had a close personal relationship with both Emperor Francis and Metternich. Highly intelligent, of high social status and experienced in both the military and diplomatic fields, he was probably the ideal candidate to lead a coalition army of three great and several lesser powers. He was cautious, detail-oriented, and if not brilliant, he would not lose a battle through blunders and mistakes as so many other Austrian, Prussian, and Russian commanders had done before him. He was also sufficiently self-confident that he could choose Radetzky as his chief of staff, a soldier who really was brilliant. Radetzky and Schwarzenberg formed a combination rare in military history that I would compare to the famous Hindenburg-Ludendorff pair at Tannenberg, our very first podcast battle. Radetzky was the logistician, the operational genius who drafted the plans, sorted out the logistics, and put the coalition armies in the positions they needed to be to win. Radetzky would have a long military career capped by a brilliant campaign and Austrian victory at Custoza in 1849 at the age of 80 that would defeat the King of Piedmont and end the First War of Italian Independence. He would also have one of the most famous military marches ever composed, dedicated to him by Johann Strauss, the Radetzky March. The 71-year-old Prussian commander, Gerhard Liebrecht von Blücher, is justly famous for his collaboration with the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo two years later. 
but he was present and active in this much larger and significant battle, leading the 90,000-strong Prussian army. He was a Swede by birth, who had entered military service in 1758 with the Swedish army at the age of 16, and actually fought against Prussia until he was captured in 1760, and then joined the Prussian army under Frederick the Great. He left the Prussian army in 1773 after an angry quarrel with the king, but after Frederick died in 1786, he rejoined his old regiment. He achieved general rank in 1794, and along the way was awarded the Pour le Marie, Prussia's highest medal for personal valor. Valor distinguished Blucher as a general. In several battles, he risked his own life, dashing into the thick of fighting. At Ligny, fought days before Waterloo, his horse was shot out from under him, and he was pinned for hours before being rescued. At 71, he was a gruff, imperious, dangerous general. A disciple of the school of thought that nerve and courage won battles, he was not short of either. His men loved and admired him for sharing their dangers. As a field general, he was a tactician whose weakness was his near recklessness and fierce taste for fighting and assuming risk. He lost his share of battles against Napoleon and his marshals, but it never daunted him. Levin August von Benningsen was the most senior Russian commander and was 68 years old at Leipzig. A decent general, but not outstanding, he had a long but sometimes checkered career as a commander. Born of German parents in Hanover, he had served in that country's army until 1773 when he entered Russian service, becoming a brigadier general in 1787 after a victory over the Turks. Benningson enjoyed a great deal of popularity until he crossed the young Tsar Paul and was dismissed in 1798. Thereafter, he was a known conspirator and active in the Tsar's murder in 1801. His role did not displease the the, uh, late Tsar's son, Tsar Alexander, who showered him with honors and promotions for the rest of his career. Unfortunately, he had been the overall commander at the earlier defeats at Bautzen and Lutzen, which negated any chance of his having supreme command in the Leipzig campaign. The last major commander is perhaps the most controversial of all, the Crown Prince of Sweden, who had become King of Sweden and Norway between 1818 and 1844. Born Jean Bernadette, son of a lawyer, in Pau, France. He had originally been groomed for a legal career, but after the early death of his father, he joined the French army in 1780 as a private. By 1785, he was a sergeant, and by 1790, had reached the rank of adjutant major. After the revolution, promotions came more quickly, and by 1794, he reached the rank of brigadier general. In 1797, he met Napoleon in Italy, arriving through the Alps with reinforcements, and for the next 13 years, loyally served Napoleon. He fought at almost every major battle, and was promoted to Marshal of France in 1804, and ennobled by Napoleon as Prince of Ponte Corvo in 1806. In a freakish twist of fate, the Swedish Parliament, facing the fact that the King of Sweden would eventually die without an heir, and with support from the army, who urged the need to select an heir with military experience, 
Sweden offered Bernadette the position of crown prince. When Napoleon did not object, Bernadette accepted the honor and, of course, entered Swedish military service. Bernadette would command the smallest force at Leipzig, but would do so skillfully. Further, his close acquaintance with Napoleon and his insight into the French emperor's thinking and tactics was highly valued by the coalition high command. Ironically, the Swedish crown prince would help bring down and doom the very man who had elevated him to the most exalted status and enabled him to accept the eventual Swedish crown. So now let's turn to the pivotal and tumultuous Battle of Leipzig itself. And we begin with the the topography of the land, as we always do. Unusual for the Napoleonic Wars, this battle would be an urban one, although, of course, the city of Leipzig was quite different in 1813 than it is today. Today, Leipzig is the largest city in the German state of Saxony and 10th largest city in Germany with nearly 600,000 people. In 1813, its population was, of course, much smaller. Many districts of the city today that we're going to talk about were villages and towns separated from the urban center or core of Leipzig by rural countryside, farms, fields, wooded areas, lowlands, swamps, and rivers. Of importance to this battle was first the defensive advantage of having structures, houses, farms, buildings, stone walls, wooden fences, and so on, that could be populated with infantry or behind which could be sighted cavalry, artillery, and so forth, that would be shielded from direct fire. Dislodging and dispersing well-disposed, dug-in formations in an urban environment would be no easier in 1813 than it would be in the mid-20th centuries, for example, at Stalingrad. Secondly, there were forests, lowlands, lakes, and rivers near and around Leipzig that made lateral movements around the circumference of the city by coalition armies quite difficult, particularly on the western side of the city. There the land was heavily wooded, and several large lakes uh, or reservoirs, the Wallendorfer and the Rasnitzer, were also uh, something that impeded movement north and south. So there was a large gap in the left flank of the southern coalition army and the right flank of the northern coalition army. The Sala River ran south to north along the western boundary of the city with only a couple of narrow bridges that would permit crossings from east to west. Another river, the Elster, exited the city about 10 o'clock in the 10 o'clock position and ran generally east to west, again inhibiting north-south movement by the Allies and restricting east-west movement by the French, which would become important later in the battle, as we'll see. Many men would die swimming, trying to swim across the Elster. Running through these somewhat, but in a not entirely impassable areas, were two roads or highways, which are today the B6 between Halle and Leipzig, and the B181 and 87, which passes through Lindenau and west. The northern army under Blucher had approached Leipzig from Halle on the 
B6. You'll remember that's where they had retreated to when Napoleon had lunged at them a week or so earlier in an attempt to catch them. Napoleon would use the B181 to escape from Leipzig days later, but this escape route was menaced on day one by the somewhat isolated Austrian Third Corps under the command of Field Marshal Ignaz Count Uli, a Hungarian general who disposed of some 22 battalions of infantry, 13 squadrons of cavalry, and 8 batteries of artillery located just south and west of this village of Lindenau. Remember that name, it's going to be an important one in this battle. As you might expect from the position of the two armies at the start of the battle, and given the superior numbers the coalition would bring to bear, Napoleon would naturally be inclined to resort to a divide-and-conquer tactical plan, seeking a quick knockout blow before turning on the other force. Schwarzenberg would not give him much opportunity on this occasion as his combined army arrived and settled into their positions around Leipzig. Hostilities began on the 16th with separate attacks by the coalition on the north, south, and western approaches to Leipzig. The idea was that the coalition forces with superior numbers would start compressing the perimeter around Leipzig since the French could not be strong everywhere. As the perimeter shrank, the coalition forces would eventually form a complete circle, trapping Napoleon within and bringing ever more powerful forces to overwhelm him and block his escape, a la Suvorov. Uli moved toward the back door at Lindenau, this is sort of at the 8-9 o'clock position, with his third corps, at first meeting little resistance. He reached the outskirts of Lindenau when Marshal Ney, realizing what was happening, detached Bertrand's fourth corps from the main body of the French army facing south and east to hold the town. The French fourth corps under the command of General Henri Bertrand consisted of a mere nine battalions of infantry, four squadrons of cavalry, and four batteries of artillery, less than half of what Uli could bring to bear, and, uh, but with the advantage of defense and being in an urban area, this made up to some extent for the disparity in the size of these forces. Nonetheless, once engaged, fighting became quite hot, and Uli's advance ground to a halt, unable to take the city, but with Bertrand unable to dislodge him either. The attack did succeed in weakening the French facing the bulk of the Army of Bohemia advancing northward from the 7 and 6 o'clock position, under the command of Prussian General Kleist, the Austrian General Mervelt, and the Duke of and Duke Eugene of Württemberg, commanding the Russian Second Corps. Mervelt's forces were repulsed initially, and Mervelt himself was wounded and captured when Napoleon arrived with the Young Guard. But, stopped at first, the Austrians resumed their offenses near Dolitz. Fighting seesawed during the day until the Austrians brought up a huge battery of artillery that essentially blew the defenders away, opening up the road into Leipzig temporarily. The Prussians and Austrians under Kleist attacked to Mervelt's right near another village, Markleberg, but were quickly counterattacked by Poniatowski and Ogero, temporarily checking that attack but sustaining heavy casualties. 
but the Russians now approached on their flank and attacked, driving Poniatowski out of Markleberg. Reorganizing, Poniatowski returned to the attack after raking an advancing Prussian brigade with artillery fire and driving them off with cavalry, retaking the town, but then lost it again when he was caught by two Prussian battalions supported by Austrian grenadiers on his flank. At the five o'clock position, the Russian Second Corps, under Joseph von Klucks, advanced on the village of Wachau, supported by a Prussian brigade. They were met there by the French center under Victor and Murat and stopped cold, but the Prussians managed to enter Wachau. Bloody street fighting ensued until a French battery was sighted and blasted the Prussians out of the village, which was then recovered by the French who held the position by the end of the day. Liebert Volkwitz was located at the four o'clock position, defended by Marshal MacDonald and about 18,000 French. The Austrian Fourth Corps under Johann von Kleinau advanced with about 34,000 bayonets. The village was initially taken by the Austrians, but then uh, were driven out in a French counterattack. Napoleon then arranged a huge grand battery of artillery on, high, on a high point uh, known as Gallows Hill, consisting of some 100 cannons. A fearful rain of artillery began, punching a hole in the coalition's lines, through which Murat's cavalry was unleashed to rout the Russian Second Corps under Duke Eugene of Württemberg. Austrian, Prussian, and Russian cavalry counterattacked and eventually succeeded in driving Murat back to the Grand Battery, where another counterattack by French dragoons saved the battery from capture. At this point, Napoleon directed his Young Guards division to support the counterattack by the dragoons, and they did indeed succeed in recapturing both Liebert Volkwitz and Wachau. But Schwarzenberg now released the elite Russian and Austrian guards units supported by Russian cuirassars. Forming squares, the guards beat off the French cavalry and then overran the French artillery batteries. On the northern front, at the 12 o'clock position, a Russian corps led by General Langeron descended on the villages of Gross-Wiedersich and Klein-Wiedersich, being held by General Dabrowski's Polish division, four infantry battalions and two cavalry battalions. In another seesaw bloodbath, the battle swayed to and fro during the day until Langeron eventually took both villages, edging closer to the center of Leipzig. The main fighting, however, took place around another village, Mokern, located at about the 11 o'clock position. Here, Marmont had the pleasure of receiving a rigorous ground attack by the two Prussian corps under Blucher. The village proved to be a killing zone due to key structures and walls that honeycombed the area, an advantage for the outnumbered French. Artillery played very little part in the fighting due to the wooded and swampy terrain. Fighting raged into the night with Blucher and his corps commanders, York and Langeron, refusing to give up or give in. Eventually, an attack by Prussian hussars tipped the scales and drove the French back. The Prussians sustained some 9,000 casualties. The French lost 7,000 and another 2,000 were taken prisoner.
while the first day's fighting had been fierce and bloody, but the French position was clearly deteriorating. The gap between the coalition's southern and northern armies in the northeast quadrant was still open, however, allowing reinforcements to reach both sides on the second day, October 17th. Very little fighting took place on the second day as each side reorganized and was reinforced, but even here the advantage went to the coalition. An additional 145,000 bayonets appeared from the northeast under Bernadette and the Swedes, as well as another Russian formation under Bennigsen. Positioned in the northeast quadrant, much of the gap there now closed, nearly linking the two armies on that side, with Benningsen now to Schwarzenberg's immediate right at the four o'clock position and Bernadette settling in at the two o'clock position to Landron's left. The French, by contrast, received only a tenth of that number in reinforcements, about 14,000 soldiers. Given the situation, Napoleon attempted, too late, to seek an armistice with the coalition. He sent the captured Austrian general Mervelt with an offer to give up certain fortresses and territory in the east of Germany in return for their allowing his army to escape to the west through Lindenau and retreat to the west bank of the Saal River, at which time peace negotiations could be conducted. While he waited, Napoleon contemplated the situation at Lindenau. Remember, that's the town I told you to recall and remember. With its roads and bridges, actually a single bridge, calculating whether and how long it would take to evacuate his army westward through the town still held by Bertrand, but with Uli hovering somewhere to, his, to the west. It's interesting to pause here to consider the fact that at this great battle, there were present five actual heads of state, along with the military command. On the French side, there was, of course, the Emperor Napoleon, but also the King of Saxony, on whose territory the battle was taking place. On the coalition side, there were the Emperors of Austria and Russia, as well as the King of Prussia and the future King of Sweden. Thus, the coalition forces could respond immediately, and they did. No armistice would be granted. This might seem obvious, but in truth, this was a, an uneasy, shaky alliance, as we've seen, particularly from the Austrian perspective. The situation was much like the alliance between Stalin's Russia on the one hand and Britain and the United States on the other in World War II. It was an alliance that had been forged out of necessity, and only out of necessity, to defeat a menace that exceeded even their own rivalries. But the alliance held firm, and would hold firm, for the rest of the war. Faced with a negative reply, Napoleon immediately understood that the coalition intended to end the war then and there, with his encirclement, defeat, and capture, and that he had no choice but to fight his way out of the situation, or capitulate. Being Napoleon, of course, he chose the former, and in this he would succeed, but at great cost. Not surprisingly, on the third day, October 18th, the coalition stuck to its original plan and completed the encirclement of Napoleon, with its additional forces making the job far easier. Attacks commenced on virtually every sector, with the coalition forces pushing forward and compressing the circle 
ever closer to the core of Leipzig. The coalition forces under Schwarzenberg in the southern sector that had camped south of the suburb of Wachau two days earlier had pushed a good two miles north to the villages of Kanewitz and Probstida, where they engaged the French under Murat and MacDonald. The three eastern monarchs, with their aides, gathered on a small hill to the east of Benningsen's forces to watch the battle. Kaiser Francis of Austria, King Frederick William of Prussia, and Tsar Alexander of Russia. And there's a monument there today if you go there, uh, and the place is known, not surprisingly, as Monarch's Hill. The fiercest fighting took place in the eastern sectors around Probstidia. Perhaps because it was within his sight, the Russian Tsar urged the Russian commander in this sector, Barclay de Tolly, to push forward and take the village. There was nothing particularly important about the village. It was just another step forward toward the city center of Leipzig and the shrinking core occupied by the French army. Nonetheless, heavy casualties would be taken during the day. The Prussians under Kleist initially stormed the town but were repulsed. Both sides wheeled up artillery and began blasting away at each other. Again, this was urban fighting and the advantage was with the defense, even when outnumbered. The French dug in behind stone walls, inside houses, behind trees and gardens and chewed up Russian and Prussian infantry advancing and then retreating. As the fighting reached a crescendo, Murat unleashed French cavalry who swept the Prussians back, only to be met by Russian cavalry that sent them back into the village. Further assaults followed as the monarchs watched until the French Imperial Guard arrived and stoutly repulsed the attack once and for all. Yet it was a minor tactical victory for the French when all was said and done. In truth, everything up to this point was a prelude to the ultimate impact that Leipzig would have on the war. The battle was a lost cause for the French by the morning of the third day. That much was for sure. The question now was would the French army and Napoleon himself survive the battle at all? The army was surrounded and circled. Recall what Suvorov had said to his commanders. When the army is driven back, we have failed. When he is cut off, encircled, and dispersed, we've succeeded. The French were encircled, just as surely as the German Sixth Army under von Paulus would be in Stalingrad in 1942, and as Napoleon's nephew, the Emperor Napoleon III, would be at Sedan in September 1870. The question now loomed, could the coalition do what Suvorov held to be the highest goal of a military commander? Could Napoleon salvage the situation and live to fight again another day? In a situation like this, where an entire field army is encircled by a larger force, inaction is death. The trapped army has one advantage left, a surprise attack, lunging with maximum force at one point in the circle, overwhelming that sector temporarily, long enough to allow most or all of the trapped force to escape, out the hole before the besieging army can react. The surrounding army must know this and be prepared to improvise quickly to plug any hole immediately and prevent the breakout. 
There are many problems in planning a breakout and escape, and these Napoleon had to solve at breakneck speed if he was to escape with his army. One of them is leading a demoralized army that has quite apparently lost already, taken heavy casualties, and is fearful of capture or death. Discipline can break down with chaos ensuing. Timing is crucial. The blow that must be struck must be hard and fast, and the rest of the force must be ready to respond and pour out of the hole before it's closed, or they're caught in a vulnerable situation by a pursuing army from the rear or the flanks. Provisions have to be left behind. Artillery must be abandoned. As the Duke of Wellington himself once said, quote, the hardest thing of all for a soldier is to retreat. As the afternoon melted into twilight and darkness, the fighting at Probstidia and most sectors of the perimeter around Leipzig died down, but not around Lindenau to the west. Again, that little village. You'll remember that an Austrian force, the Austrian Third Corps under Field Marshal Uli, had fought its way into Lindenau on the first day and become bogged down there when confronted by General Henri Bertrand's Fourth Corps that dug into the town. That stalemate, a sideshow for the past two days, had continued when suddenly, and in my opinion, not surprisingly, Napoleon concluded that this was the point for an all-out attack, a lunge to escape the tightening circle. A single bridge crossed the river flowing north and south on the western edge of Leipzig's town center. Lindenau was on the other side of a sort of pond that became part of the Elster River known as the Elsterbecken or Magpie Pool. Most of Napoleon's army occupying the center of Leipzig was on the eastern side of the bridge and the river, or the pond, I should say. Bertrand and Uli and the town of Lindenau was on the western side. To the north and south of Lindenau were a series of rivers and wooded forests that made passage north and south extremely difficult, as we noted earlier. What this meant was that Uli's Third Corps was isolated from Blücher to the north and Schwarzenberg to the south. He couldn't be easily reinforced, especially as the northern coalition army under Blücher and Bernadette were heavily engaged most of the day, as was Schwarzenberg and his commanders on the southern sector. Uli was pretty much on his own against Bertrand for the better part of two days. And this was fine because, as we noted before, Uli had the much stronger, more numerous force, while Bertrand had the advantage of defense in dug-in structures and breastworks in the town. A stalemate. This sector then went largely silent after the failure by Uli to dislodge Bertrand. The main Austrian force then withdrew from Lindenau itself, leaving a small screen to observe the French. It was not deemed to be a very important part of the battle until the third and fourth days. When Napoleon determined to escape at that point, he picked the time and place that offered the best chance to get away. Napoleon hasn't gone down in history as a master of retreat. He didn't have to retreat very often. But this retreat would be nothing short of masterful given the dire circumstances. If Napoleon could push Uli aside, neutralize him, 
he would have a largely unobstructed passage out to the west toward France, because the rivers and forests to the north and south of the two main roads, leading away from Lindenau to the west, would block the coalition forces from quickly repairing the hole and keeping the French army surrounded. At around three o'clock on the afternoon of the 18th, the third day of the battle, Bertrand made his move, surprising an Austrian screening formation guarding the Lutzen Road, leading southwest from Leipzig toward Wiesenfels on the River Saal. It's to Uli's discredit that he didn't appreciate what was happening and move his main force up to Lindenau to confront Bertrand, but then again, neither did the rest of the coalition high command. Napoleon had shown no signs of backing down in the defense of Leipzig, and so great was his reputation and past success that the generals and monarchs fully expected the fighting to continue and Napoleon to stay put. This was a mistake, the signal coalition mistake in an otherwise straightforward and effective plan to end the war in one titanic battle. Napoleon and Poniatowski discussed the situation on the afternoon of the 18th, and Poniatowski agreed to fight the rear-guard action, quote, to the last man, if necessary, so as to permit, to permit the escape of most of the French army. He was promoted by Napoleon to the rank of field marshal that afternoon. He would be dead in 24 hours, but would carry out his command heroically to the end, losing half his men in combat. Under cover of darkness, the French army quietly, silently fell back from Konovitz, Probstidia, Stoderitz, Volksmannsdorf, and Reudnitz, crossing the Magpie Pond on the western outskirts of Leipzig on the single bridge. The coalition cavalry advance posts failed to detect the French withdrawal during the night. Thin, screening forces concealed the retreat, allowing the evacuation to continue throughout the night. At seven o'clock in the morning, the coalition commanders realized what had happened. An immediate offensive was ordered on the forces remaining behind under Poniatowski, who fought a brilliant retreating action using the urban landscape for cover to slow the now overwhelmingly more numerous and powerful coalition armies who closed in on the center of Leipzig. Urban street fighting was bloody and at close quarters, but ever closer uh, they came to the Elster River and the only bridge out of the city while Napoleon and his army retreated now at full speed to the southwest toward Wiesenfels on the Saal River. In a catastrophic miscalculation, a French officer set fuses afire to explosive charges set against the only bridge out of Leipzig, and at approximately one o'clock they detonated, trapping Poniatowski, Oudinet, and Corps Commanders Lauriston and Renier, who all were captured. Between ten and 15,000 men were trapped and had to surrender. Poniatowski, wounded earlier in the day, drowned as he attempted to cross the Elster along with hundreds of other French and Allied soldiers. So often in war and in battles, the greatest casualties are taken during retreat. Napoleon had escaped, though, along with the remnants of his army of the Alba, but in all other respects the battle had been a disaster for him and a triumph for the coalition. 
An estimated 80,000 soldiers survived to fight again another day, retreating across Germany with the coalition armies in slow but methodical pursuit. French losses were heavy. Some 38,000 were killed, with another 15,000 sick or wounded. Another 15,000 were taken prisoner, and in a mutiny another 5,000 Saxons defected to the coalition side. Coalition losses were slightly higher, estimated at between 42 and 45,000, but with a much larger army and four separate nations contributing, they could bear it more. Nonetheless, Leipzig was the largest and bloodiest battle of the Napoleonic Wars, which had lasted 13 years at that point and would go on for another six months. Let's talk about the legacy of this battle. As at Gettysburg, the coalition victory was marred by what could have been a complete annihilation of the French army and the capture of the emperor himself. Nonetheless, it was the decisive turning point battle of the war. Napoleon would never again take the strategic offensive, forced to defend his throne and diminishing empire with only tactical offensives and tentative, temporary victories in the face of an irresistible tide of coalition power. The situation was very similar to the waning months of the Second World War in 1945, when Germany fought on and was capable only of small tactical wins while being crushed between the Allied armies to the east and west. Waterloo, so often thought to be the decisive battle in the defeat of Napoleon and his empire, was relatively small by comparison. Napoleon's army at Leipzig had consisted of some 225,000 men and 700 guns. The coalition forces, once joined by Bernadette, swelled to 430,000 men and 1,500 guns. By comparison, at Waterloo, Wellington and Blucher disposed of 118,000 men and 156 guns, as against Napoleon's 73,000 men and 252 guns, about a quarter of the size of the force at Leipzig for the coalition, and about a third of the size of the army Napoleon commanded at Leipzig. Napoleon had never been decisively beaten in a major stand-up battle by any army in Europe until Leipzig. While the coalition, newly formed and pieces of it having been battered by Napoleon in the weeks before, had maneuvered slowly and at times awkwardly, it had preserved its unified command structure and moved methodically toward a well-conceived goal. It came within an ace of ending the war right then and there on the streets and fields in and around Leipzig in October 1813. Nonetheless, in just over five months' time, the coalition armies would capture Paris and Napoleon would abdicate, essentially ending a period of warfare that began shortly after the French Revolution in 1792 and had lasted for 22 years of on-and-off bloodshed. Defeat at Leipzig, at Leipzig spelled 
doom for Napoleon and his system that had held sway in Europe for most of those 22 years and ushered in a new era in which France was no longer the supreme dominant power in continental Europe, just another one of the so-called great powers that made up the concert of Europe after the Congress of Vienna. The victory at Leipzig would re-establish the Austrian Empire as the fulcrum of Europe for the next half-century, balancing the power of Russia and Prussia in the east against France and Britain in the west. Prussia, after the Congress of Vienna, would nearly double in size and economic power, positioning it to resume its duel for supremacy in Germany with Austria, which it would eventually win in 1866 at Königgratz, a little over 200 miles to the east of this battlefield where they had fought as uneasy allies. And Königgratz is one of our earlier podcasts if you'd like to hear about that massive battle. Russia, under Alexander I, had completed what his grandmother, Catherine the Great, had started, establishing Russia as a first-rate power in the affairs of Europe. So great a power that most of the other powers imagined a continued, growing ascendancy that would menace Europe as time went on. Russia absorbed most of Poland as its reward for expelling Napoleon in 1812 and contributing the most soldiers at Leipzig. As I suggested at the beginning of our story, to most of us in the English-speaking world, The Battle of Leipzig is hardly known, but it shouldn't be. As the largest and most decisive battle of the Napoleonic Wars, it truly did bend the arc of history. (laughs) 